This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Uh, and welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Congratulations, you found us. This is The Conspiracy Show. I'm Richard Serrett. Come on in, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. You are among friends. Uh, April 15th marks the 104th anniversary of the sinking of the Royal Mail steamer Titanic in the uh, icy waters off the coast of Newfoundland, the unsinkable pride of the White Star Line went down with 1,500 passengers and crew. Uh, Petrea Patrick, author, filmmaker, activist, and author of Titanic, A Perfect Crime, is standing by. We'll get to her in just a few moments. Our audio engineer, Ian Robertson, is on the other side of the glass, twisting the dials and knobs. Albert, Inv- uh, Albert Venzel, my story producer, is here running our HOA, Hangout On Air. So if you want to watch the live stream of the radio program, uh, go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T, at Richard Serrett, and click on the HOA link, which is found in the tweet near the top of the feed. Again, go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, and click on the HOA link in the tweet at or near the top of the Twitter feed. And uh, while you're there, please follow. And then you're into the HOA. You can watch the, uh, the, the radio program uh, stream live. And uh, I put on a fresh shirt and everything just for you. So <laughs> I even ironed it. Uh, Albert and I have also posted our usual assortment of tantalizing tidbits, fascinating news uh, stories, etc. in the slide carousel at the top of the website. So how do you find it? Well, here's what you need to do. It's very simple. Go to strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, and then you click on the radio page for The Conspiracy Show. Uh, And uh, there at the top is the slide carousel. There's a great story from GQ magazine about Tom DeLonge. Uh, Now, I'm not real familiar with his orchestra, (laughs) Blink-182. I've heard about them. You know, uh, Ian is giving us the thumbs up. But Tom DeLonge, interesting character, uh, former Blink-182 guitarist, and now um, Angels and Airwaves, I think, is the new band, isn't it? 
Ian, he's giving me the thumbs up. Yes, he's the front man for that. Anyway, he's he's talking about, in this article, talking about his upcoming novel, Secret Machines, Chasing Shadows, UFOs, and Government Secrets That Will Rock Your World. We've got to get this young man on the program, Albert. All right, put that one down. Tom DeLong, uh, former frontman from 182, Blink 182, uh, very much interested in the whole UFO um, disclosure movement, I suppose. Well... Get in line, Tom. It's it's a growing, growing community, isn't it? Uh, anyway, there's also a video posted in the slide carousel. It's an excerpt from the Honorable Paul Hellyer's speech on the need for bank reform here in Canada. Of course, we've talked a lot about that on The Conspiracy Show, both with Mr. Hellyer and uh, with Attorney Rocco Galati, who is uh, representing Mr. Hellyer and others in a court case seeking to restore the true purpose of the Bank of Canada an interesting case, it may go to the Supreme Court, and this alleges conspiracy at the highest levels of government, including the Prime Minister, Finance Ministers, the Head of the Bank of Canada, even the Queen of England, I believe, is mentioned in this case. Uh, there is also a story posted there about why the mainstream media won't cover uh, the annual Bilderberg meeting. Uh, this year's gathering of the world's elite is slated for, I believe I've read May 19th to the 23rd, and it's either going to be they're going back to Chantilly, uh, in West Virginia, or perhaps another place um, suggested is Sierra Pines Resort, which is in Sierra, Northern California. Uh, and further to that, there's also a trailer in the slide carousel for Daniel Estelin's new documentary film, Bilderberg the Movie. And that leads me to one final reminder that Daniel will be presenting his new film, Bilderberg the Movie, Sunday, April 17th at the University of Toronto and delivering a 90-minute lecture. You don't want to miss this exclusive event, The Bilderbergs with Daniel Estulin, Sunday, April 17th, U of T. Uh, doors open at 3.30. You'll see the documentary, hear Daniel, uh, um, and he'll deliver this 90-minute uh, lecture. There'll be a Q&A and a book signing and a meet and greet. For more information or to purchase tickets, go to the live events page at strangeplanet.ca or visit my good friends, Patrick and Kadena at Conspiracy Culture, 1344 Bloor Street West here in Toronto. And get this, use the code name Prince Bernhardt and you'll receive 20% off your purchase tickets, a purchase of tickets. That promotion is good for in-store purchases only. Use the code phrase Prince Bernhardt. Uh, you can also order over the phone, 416-916-1696, 416-916-1696, or online at conspiracyculture.com. The Bilderbergs with Daniel Estulin and yours truly, Sunday, April 17th, U of T. Hope to see you there. And reminder, this is your last week to get tickets, so don't delay any longer. All right, let's talk Titanic and other things. Petraea Patrick has produced and directed documentaries on subjects that impact us all. With her directing and writing style, she's been a vocal advocate for a stable economy, accountability on Wall Street, big banks, and protecting our ever-fragile ecology. She's spoken around the country on subjects that matter most to people. She's currently Director of Media Relations for the EMP Task Force on National and Homeland Security and the CEO of Heartfelt Films, a company dedicated to making documentary films and addressing social issues that affect us all. Her work in the visual platform of journalism excels in bringing us the real stories, films that help us to strengthen community, 
uh, community awareness, and on a nation, nationwide level, uh, bring awareness on such platforms as national security, GMOs, big oil, big pharma, big agriculture, big banking, the Federal Reserve, education, social, social security, and health care. And these qualifications make her viable, a viable candidate for political office. In fact, she is running for Congress, uh, the, uh, the, the 30th di- district, I believe, up in, in California, and she's uh, always stood to get more women in politics to even the field. Now, if that's not enough, as a novelist, Betraya's new novel is about the secret meeting on Jekyll Island and the founding of the Federal Reserve, 10 Days on Jekyll Island, an insight into the conception of the ill-fated legislation and the furtive men in power behind it, and another new one, Titanic, A Perfect Crime, a novel that follows the money and questions official hearings that said... Uh, she sank in one piece. Wow, that's quite a resume. Patreya Patrick, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Doing great. Thank you very much for having me on. And yes, Titanic is such an amazing piece of history, and this uh, history is coming to this uh, anniversary, so it's a very good time to talk about it and the people that were involved, such as the survivors and some of the shipmates that made it through, and then the people that uh, picked up some of the bodies. Mm-hmm. Very interesting piece of history, and I'm so glad you're uh, joining and are part of this. Well, bef- before we, we get into the particulars, i, I got to ask you, I mean, you've got so much on the go. I mean, you're, you're uh, very involved in this EMP uh, task force, and, I, and the FBI recently said they're very concerned uh, about a, a terrorist a threat on the on the grid, the national grid system in the United States, and of course Canada and the U.S. Our grids are so intricately uh, connected, uh, and if they go down, I mean, it's lights out for an extended period of time, uh, or whether it's a, a, a coronal, you know, a mass ejection, uh, a natural event, uh, we'd get little warning of that. So much on the go. You're running for Congress. Why sort of rearview rear mirror 104 years ago and and talk about the Titanic? Oh, well, I've been doing a lot of research, and in my work, I started doing uh, the film American Empire way back when, and it really it brought me to understand the revolving door between Wall Street and Washington, and that corrupt money that we see that is the Millionaire's Club now in Congress, and uh, so... I, I did that film, and I, you know, I just do so much research, and I found I came across uh, J.P. Morgan, and I was doing a, a, a film uh, that is now going to be a book called Ten Days at Jekyll Island," and it talks about the uh, secret meeting there at at Jekyll Island and what uh, por- what was portrayed there, which uh, is the Federal Reserve and the establishing of that. And that led me to find out that J.P. Morgan actually owned the White Star Line. And so I thought, well, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I just kept doing a lot of research. And there is actually quite a bit of information. If you tie it together properly, which is what I've tried to do, you come up with some stunning facts. And now that actually Titanic has been found we have more information that can shine a light on this spectacular subject. But, uh, you know, when you are a researcher and a filmmaker, 
you, you, it led me to also finding out about this uh, EMP issue as well, and that was a real big one. And so that, again, ties into the power companies that are so greedy and will not let go of the uh, power to serve our power, service our com- country with power. And so we really are stuck depending on them for reliability of good power and fair bills. But this new information is brought to light that we're also now in a position where they are not stepping forward to harden the grid. So we are, as civilians, in a very difficult situation that we don't know. And so I, I love to bring this information to us as citizens. And so that led me, with all my knowledge, to run for Congress. Wow. Uh, you're one very, very busy lady. Um, yes. Uh, the, um, it's interesting because, you know, there, is, there seems to be, you know, I, as you go back in time and you, these names surface, J.P. Morgan, you mentioned him and the power grid. And, of course, it was Morgan that was, was uh, funding a Tesla when Tesla was uh, attempting to demonstrate that you could, you could transmit electricity through the air wirelessly. Uh, and uh, suddenly, when he, he tried to demonstrate that in um, was it Wardenclyffe on Long Island, that 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 funding was pulled from from J.P. Morgan, and and here we are over a hundred years after that, and electricity is still pretty much transmitted in the same inefficient old way, you know, where according to the rules, you know, the Moore's laws, uh, electricity. I mean, we should be light years ahead in terms of where we're the way we're transmitting electricity but nothing has changed but the names remain the same these these same names coming up in history you mentioned JP Morgan and the Titanic um, let me ask you about oh well, we're going to head into a break uh, Petrea when we come back we'll uh, we'll continue uh, or begin our discussion on Titanic the perfect crime right here the conspiracy show my name is Richard Serrett don't go away The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Patria Patrick is with us. Titanic, a perfect crime. As we approach the 104th anniversary of the uh, sinking of the Titanic... Uh, now, um, you talked about the, uh, the the book following the illustrious career of J.P. Morgan, and you discovered that it was J.P. Morgan who uh, who owned the White Star Line, and of course, the Titanic was uh, was was part of the White Star Line. Uh, talk to me about so someone else though who's um, uh, very central to this story, and that of course is uh, the captain of the Titanic, Captain Smith, and how he he was chosen uh, to be uh, the ship's captain. Yeah. I thought that Captain Smith had the perfect record, and everyone did. And he looks so illustrious, and he's just a beautiful front, 
man. And what he really was good at was the being uh, attuned to taking care of these first-class passengers that came in. I mean, you'd have, like, the president's son come, like President Taft's son would come and get on the ship, and, and he needed to be treated, uh, wined and dined, and Smith was very good at that. So he was, it was a perfect uh, pick for this captain. But as we look back into the record, he did not have the clean record that we know about. Now, before he took charge to Captain Titanic, he was on the first ship, which was Olympic. So if we backtrack a little bit, J.P. Morgan was very instrumental in designing these three ships. And what he wanted to do was have this beautiful ship that was just so elegant that you would leave from your hotel. Let's say you were staying like at the Ritz Hotel in, in Paris or some one of these elegant places, and you'd get on this beautiful ship, and it would just be very luxurious. And then you'd, so it would be like this traveling hotel, which they didn't really have at that time. Cargo ships and carriers and, and uh, liners were really just for travel, and they weren't first class. So it was Morgan's idea to take that into account and say, I, I, can, I can have steerage and below and make a m- bunch of money off the alcohol and, and, uh, because people will be traveling for a week and nothing else to do, and I'll make tons of money in steerage, and I'll make all this money in the first class and have this uh, very elite group that I carry back and forth, and they will come and land in New York, and then they'll go to this very prestigious hotel. So it was all the way around a very good idea. And so Morgan was looking for, you know, he wanted this captain that could accommodate this. Now, that was, there was, uh, Olympic was the first ship off of the line. And so Captain Smith was brought in for, for this very job, and he was, he was really good at it. And as Titanic, as, I'm sorry, as Olympic went out, she was in a crash with a British ship, a British ship called the Hawk, RMS Hawk, Royal Her Majesty's ship. And so what happened was that Morgan was going to have to pay those charges to Her Majesty's ship, the Hawk, because it was the Royal Navy, and so they were blamed. And it's hard to say exactly whose fault it was. I I think Tartan. Uh, Olympic at the time was too big. To, you know, they're these really big ships, and they're very difficult to maneuver in time. And so there was this horrible crash. And this HMS Hawk had one of these, uh, like there was a, it's a, a piercing, because it's, it's a warship, it had a piercing front edge on the uh, Right, in order to ram other ships, right. Yeah, it's like a, like the old Romans had. Like right. It's a ramming ship. And so it, it actually went into Olymp- Olympic and gouged this gigantic hole in her. And so they took her back to to port and tried to figure, like, could they even repair this? And so first the word was, well, we probably could get in there and, and repair her. And then we, uh, it, you know, find out later, well, there there might have been some damage that was irreplaceable but it did make me want to go back and look into captain smith's record and so i found out that 
he had other crashes as well in previous, and, and I list them in the book. And where the book is really beautiful is that it, it I'll, I have it in novel form for my protection. But it, ah, I was going to ask you why you did that. That's I, that's I understand. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, so everything you're going to read is pretty much based on these testimonials from the survivors and whatnot, and pieces of history. So if you look back, you, you can look back in the history yourself, and you'd see if you start doing it correctly that you have you know you have to look through it would be through different lines like what line did a person work for that he had a clean record so smith had a clean record on the white star line but if you look at the other lines that he was in you would see again and that really led me to think well why you know why does he have two sets of records here and that that was very questionable and uh, and a couple of um, people died because he just wasn't piloting his ship correctly, and so losing the crew members is a very is a very big deal, and you get a very tainted name for doing that. So it surprised me that this gentleman would be chosen to uh, first off take Olympic, and then later uh, Olympic was damaged, and so at the point when they decided to bring Titanic out, they were uh, repairing Olympic. And so they asked Captain Smith if he would take Titanic. Now, that just, that really uh, caught my attention. It would be like, Richard, if you had a Rolls Royce and you let me borrow it and took some your best people in it, and I crashed it, and then I came back and said, hey, well, you know, sorry about that. And then you said, well, I have another Rolls Royce, and I want you to take that one now. Yeah, it, obviously uh, the flags are, are are up, but you know it, it, it's interesting because you mentioned the Olympic, and which was you know every bit as spectacular as the Titanic. They were almost carbon copies, weren't weren't they? They were, and this yeah. is what, another thing that raises a red flag. When you look back and you see Olympics, which was the very first ship off this line, and you look for her maiden voyage, it's in the paper, but it's a very small. Little, two, barely two little lines in a paper, you know, Olympic maiden voyage going off, and right. you, you couldn't even find it if you were looking for it. Yeah, why did he the Olympic get no, virtually no media attention, even though, it was, as you say, first off the line, and then the Titanic, which is the second one off the line, gets all the hoopla? What's going on there? And it did get this hoopla. It got double-page ads. It got fanfare. People came. It was such an, a big ordeal, this ship that people came from all over. You know, back then they didn't have much in the way of entertainment, movies and things like that. So it was a very big, exciting thing. And people came from all over to watch these elite group of passengers get on this ship. And they could watch them sort of board from the, not from a close, from a, they couldn't get too close, but the way the docks were set up, they could get on a, on a, a sister dock there and see this. And they could take sh- pictures of it and... It was quite the thing, and then you'd watch the ship take out into into uh, into the into the soylent, and then up out, on out to sea. And so, for Titanic to get this big extravaganza, and uh, it, the pageantry that went with it was another red flag. Once you start having this many red flags, you wonder what is going on. And one of the things that always irked me, I, I am Irish and uh, Swedish in my upbringing, and I always, they, they 
when they say Titanic went down, they like to, one of the theories is why she went down is that her rivets might not have been actually placed and, and uh, heated properly. So they were like, they're saying that the Irish did a, a poor manufacturing, which was very interesting when you go down and Robert Ballard went down in the first uh, du- in like a diving right. bell. Right. He was able he came up the first thing he came to was this wall, this wall of iron. And it was just massive. And it was, seemed like it was never ending. And all he could see was rivets and rivets and more rivets. And then finally he came to some portholes and everything was in perfect condition. Not a rivet was ripped, not a rivet was loose, not a porthole was broken. And it was just like this ship was down there perfectly. And a matter of fact, it landed perfectly straight up. So it wasn't like landing and then tilted to the side and fell over. It landed like and like it was just put there by angels' hands. And it's very strange. And the other thing that was interesting is the normally when a ship would go down, you would think, okay, it's going to go nose first, and the nose would be... Uh, the the bow would totally be destroyed. So again, that looked strange to me that the bow is, it looked like it just floated down straight on down. And then, so the bow is in really good shape. Uh, there's a couple bevels when you get a little bit uh, farther into like about where, where the captain's quarters are. If you were to go straight down from that, you would see there's a kind of a bevel there where it took a kind of a, a hit when it landed. And then it's perfect again for a very long ways up until you get to the middle of the ship and all of a sudden it's just gone. The ship is just gone, the other half of it. And what is really odd is that the passengers now that were sort of the survivors, if we go back into that the, the history, when they came back, and when they were on uh, in, in the surviving uh, boats in these lifeboats, they these women, these very rich elite women, very sharp women, and uh, you know very uh, capable witnesses, and yet the, when they got back to land, they said we couldn't believe we saw, you know we saw her break into it was just it was uh, awful, and they were told. I'm sorry you were in shock, and you just must have been, it must have been too much of a traumatic experience for you. And the records went down in history as Titanic going down in one piece. Even though you had these capable witnesses saying that, they were told that they were just in shock. And so this is another uh, red flag. I wonder if, I'm wondering too, I'd love to see the actual history papers, if anyone actually went back to those records and actually ever changed it since it was found by Robert Ballard in uh, 19, was it 1983 or something? That sounds about right. Wow. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the British Inquiry, uh, the, the official statement from the British Inquiry was she went down in one piece, and then you had survivors, as you say, saying, no, they saw her go down in two pieces. So there's another another uh, inconsistency. Uh, I, I want to back up to the the uh, Olympic just for a moment because there, another interesting point 
the Olympic wasn't involved in 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 one in one mishap, not two mishaps, but three mishaps. Three mishaps, and the third one's the most interesting. We should talk about that. Uh, the the uh, the second one was uh, you know, and, and and we just want to mention on too. There were so there were three three crashes that Olympic went through. And they were able to fix her and repair her. And supposedly she's worked, uh, went on for, was it 25 years of service in the, Brit- in the British? Um, they actually took her over for wartime and they made her a service vessel. And so can you imagine being on this elegant <laughs> ship that's like Titanic? Exactly. And, you know, they made like the floors for hospitals and such. But so the, the uh, one crash that it, that she was in was she after she had been rammed with the the HMS Hawk she was then in uh, where she went and hit um, a a sunken ship that was known to be there now they were uh, mapping these sunken ships very well so that people wouldn't go into these, that, that area that close, you would be very aware about that. And so these captains were, were quite sure, sure that these wrecks were there and they would have to either go around them or take a different path. And so, again, why would Captain Smith uh, have this crash and run over this vessel that, again, tore his keel so that the, then again she was, uh, um, you know, un unusable and declared a wreck. Wait a minute, are you saying Captain Smith was at the helm for two crashes with the Olympic? Yes, yes. How inept could this man have been? How inept could he have been? And then he gets gets to take the wheel for the Titanic. I mean, (laughs) my word, that's just, it's a comedy of errors. It, it's it, this is where it becomes uh, uh, just unbelievable, and so there was some. Let's go back to Titanic for a bit, and uh, where I like to go in the story is a lot of people. Um, well, there's a lot of things that uh, we don't know, but I found that there was evidence that the British knew at one point that the war was coming. They were very aware of of, of this, and so. They knew they had to figure what they were going to do with their cash of gold. And so they wanted to send it to America for safekeeping. So J.P. Morgan, very aware of this, and he had inside information on this, too. And so he's approaching them to say, well, I'll, save, I'll keep it safe for you. Not only that, I'll invest it if you'd like it to, uh, to make some money on it. But you certainly can't be having that much gold in, in Britain during war times. No, that's not a good thing. So I will... I will make my Titanic ship available for that transfer for you. <laughs> and uh, so lo and behold, when Titanic left, there was, there was a, a van that came early in the morning, and it, it didn't have a lot of guards with it, and, it, and not a lot of people knew what, the tr- what, what was in this, uh, what was in the van. The people knew where it was coming from, knew what was in it, but what the people guarding it didn't know, and they didn't make a big deal of it, and they didn't have a whole lot of guards with it, so it didn't look too suspicious, and it was um, marked, marked statues. 
and it went into cargo hold number five. Uh, Petraea, I'm going to stop you right there. We'll pick up on that point. What was in cargo hold number five? We'll find out when Petraea Patrick returns. The author of the novel Titanic, A Perfect Crime, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Patria Patrick is with us, filmmaker, activist, candidate for uh, Congress, and uh, the author of a number of books, including her new one, a novel, Titanic, A Perfect Crime. Uh, you were talking about um, uh, England knew they were heading into a war. This is 1912. The war is two years away. And, of course, at this time, there are, uh, there's plenty of uh, spy craft going on in England, German spies in England, British spies in Germany. There's all sorts of – I'm remembering this now as I'm – because I watched Downton Abbey <laughs> season one. <laughs> and this is, you know, there's explosions going on and, and basically sort of terrorism going on in, in, um, in Germany and England. So, yeah, they were gearing up for war. So uh, J.P. Morgan invited, I guess, the British government to load some of their gold, perhaps, onto the, uh, onto the Titanic. And you've been able to connect some dots. Uh, and you found that there was a sort of a, a van uh, on the dock and uh, sort of low profile, but they were loading something into cargo hold number five, Petraea. And what was it? Crates headed for J.P. Morgan's museum, and they were it, it marked as museum statues. So they uh, went unnoticed. Now, perhaps this is another good uh, piece of wealth that would be on Titanic today. Another good reason why divers might want to go down there and why this uh, is still something that people would want to venture on down there. It's very risky to go down that far and uh, try to get inside the ship. So it, it and, and let's say if even anyone did, would we even know? So these are, are questions that we uh, kind of need to ask. But Titanic is laying down there, and she's supposedly supposed to be off limits now. But there, are, there were many pirates that took what they wanted when uh, she was available to do this. So this gold is, is a big piece of the puzzle here. But I just wanted to uh, mention, too, on the um, three, we were talking about the three crashes that why why Titanic why, why actually Titanic had a crash too almost a near miss on its maiden voyage and it was because of these triple blade screws what they call the triple blade screws Titanic and Olympic were the first ever to use this what they call the triple screw system 
And so if we go back to Olympic, when she first had one of, uh, one of her first voyages out, she was going uh, in the water and pulling so much water that she actually, with the force of the uh, force of the water, it pulled a tugboat off of the dock there and its own mooring and pulled it into 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 Olympic. And it, so that was the first crash that that did happen, and that was with Smith. So that was the first one, and then the second one was with this hawk, the RMS Hawk, and this big giant hole that went into her, which was really devastating. And then the third, she did hit this sunken uh, ship, which pulled the keel into irreplaceable, really irreplaceable damage. It was really going to be a big deal to, to fix and afford to fix that ship. So, yes, why would, back to, why would Morgan say, I'll let you drive my brand new one on a maiden voyage that I'm even going to really make big note about and everything, and I'm inviting all kinds of people to be on the ship. So that was really uh, strange. Another thing that was really interesting is if you look at most ships when they do go down, they get hit on, let's say they get hit even by a torpedo, because some of them were hit by torpedoes. They usually start listing, and then they go down in a very short time. Lusitania went down in 18 minutes. Right, right. And Titanic had all of these watertight doors. And to me, it was a feat of history. That is where the real history is. And I'm, I'm hoping people will get the book because I don't want to give everything away. No, no, no. We don't want to do that. So, but... but I will t- tell you that it is the biggest feat in history that that ship stayed afloat as long as it did. Because when you have a gash on one side... It's going to draw, and it's going to tip. That's just sort of the nature of of ships. And so it's also interesting that there are theories that it might have been a smarter idea to crash into the iceberg, not turn into it. You would have had less loss of crew. Maybe you'd lose the first crew uh, that were up front. Maybe 30 people would, would have perished, but you would have would have saved the rest of the ship, and those watertight doors would have still been uh, intact and working. But you, you, you so, point out, I mean, it, the bow is what took the, the brunt of the uh, the collision with the iceberg. And yet, according to, I guess it's Ballard, when he searched it and found the Titanic in two pieces, uh, the, the damage was to the midsection, and the bow, which again took the, the, the brunt of the crash, was in relatively good shape. This is this is my quest for why is that, and I think that there. Uh, this is this is where I why I wanted to write the book. It's just it was too interesting and too exciting to not answer those questions, and so we have to look at what in the world would tear a ship apart like that. You know, I I went to, and I've looked at the Queen Mary, and I've also exclusively looked at. There's some very good pictures of Titanic laying on the sea floor, and there's something in a ship called an expansion joint, and it's the, a, the a, it's like a big steel plate in the ship, and it gives the ship uh, the ability to move and take these big storms, and not break in half, and that would be the logical place for a ship if she was just going to break in half, that it would have broken at that. All right. Did it not? 
All right, we'll uh, take another time out. We'll come back. The book is Titanic, A Perfect Crime. Filmmaker, activist, candidate for U.S. Congress, author, Petraea Patrick, stays with us. I hope you'll do the same. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Uh, welcome back. Time is tight. We never have enough time. Patria uh, Patrick is here. The book is Titanic, A Perfect Crime. Uh, let's let's uh, move ahead. Okay, so the, the Titanic... Uh, hits the uh, hits the iceberg, uh, and um, they fire off their uh, their their distress rockets, if you will. And just sitting out there, about five miles away, uh, we have another vessel called the Californian. And uh, apparently, they saw the rockets, these distress rockets, being fired in the distance. Uh, but they really took their sweet time getting there, coming to the rescue, didn't they? Well, you know, it's very interesting. Let's look at this one question. Who owned the Californian? What cargo was the Californian carrying? Answer number one, Morgan owned the Californian. And number two, what cargo was it carrying? It really wasn't carrying any cargo. And it was unheard of at that time that you would send a ship out uh, and and have it be empty. It just wasn't profitable. They found 3,000 sweaters and brandy and 3,000 blankets. That's just a very strange cargo. It just happens to be almost enough for the people who were on Titanic. It's just kind of interesting. Mm. So, yes, and it was it was up there, and it was sitting there with its radio off and just waiting, waiting, waiting. Waiting for what is my question. So the uh, things like that... Br- you know, really have to bring us into uh, bring this into light. And when when the, the ships that came, there was a Mackie Bennett that came and actually picked up the survivors, or the bodies, not the survivors, but the, the uh, next few days. It wasn't even a few days later that the Mackie Bennett was sent out, and they found bruised bodies, all kinds of bruised bodies. And one of the things they had said that when um, they were picking up the first survivors. They uh, didn't want to pick up too many, and Ismay was saying, let's get away from this, and, and he ordered, for some reason, he even had the ability to order this Captain Lord to uh, go, go, you know, go to port instead of you know, really pick up these bodies. Now they knew they were dead, but one of the reasons I believe that it was done is because the Ismay did not want anyone to see these bodies were all bruised and blown up, because if the ship just sank, they would be drowned, but they wouldn't be bloody and bruised. So when the Mackie Bennett came to pick up the rest of the bodies that were able, they uh, 
saw them in this, you know, it was just, it was overwhelming, the amount of destruction to the bodies and such. So, and I also questioned too, Ismay also ordered that the bodies that were, the first few bodies that were brought back were put in bags and they uh, were sealed so that we wouldn't see that too. So that's strange evidence why he wouldn't, you know, why he has to cover that up. And uh, the, another interesting thing was White Star spent a lot of money after Olympic had this had her third crash. They decided, look, we're going to make her look better too, and they spent a lot of time and money like, making the two ships really identical twins. They were pretty much twins, but at that point, they really spent a lot of time doing that. Okay, let so, me see if we can connect some dots here then. Yeah. Okay, so. The uh, the evidence would tend to suggest that it wasn't the iceberg uh, that brought down the Titanic. Uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, it's it's um, the midsection suffered considerable damage. The bow, which supposedly hit the iceberg, uh, the iceberg, not so much damage. Then we have these reports of these bodies, bloodied, battered, uh, bruised. All this pointing to possibly what an explosion on board is that the idea yes and when you go down and you look at the actual where the, the break is where it's not even it's not even a break it's just like so undistinguishable that it's it's beyond you know just it's just rippage and it had to be strong enough that it actually blew out you know you have these giant turbines you have the engine room you have the turbine room and uh, the boiler room, and these were, you know, massive, big pieces that uh, are not easily damaged. So for them to be damaged is, you know, it's beyond it's beyond belief that whatever that was that could do it. It's just definitely not that it just sunk. Well, so further something had to happen. Further to that, you point out in the book that the shipmates, there's a number of shipmates on the Titanic, the last stop. Uh, before they headed across the Atlantic, a number of them jumped ship after, you point out, after they went down to the boiler room. So what's yeah. going on there, uh, Patricia? Well, and, and this is, let's just make a little bit more light of that, too. Is This was a time when there was a big ship strike in England at the time, in Ireland or around that area. Anyway, in the shipping area, there was a coal strike, so ships weren't going out. And so it was jobs were very hard to come by and if there was a job on the most prestigious beautiful ship going out and you could get it why would you go you know they took it they took it uh, a few a few stops and then they said we're getting off before she you know at the last stop and why would they do that when jobs were so, so scarce at that moment people really needed to feed their families and so this would be not an opportune time to do that so something alerted them when they went into this boiler room down there and they kept their mouth shuts about it they did they did not talk about it they until much much later after the fact that she went down so there were there were people that uh, were talking about some things that they thought were going on in the bars and the pubs at that time the workers would get together but they were very afraid of getting caught talking about it and if you didn't have a job, that you would not survive at that time. And there were, so people were very cautious about saying anything, and they were really doing what they were told. As a matter of fact, 
when the crew came back on those lifeboats, they were taken to this warehouse and they were debriefed, which is very strange. Instead of being taken right directly to their family and being given warm clothing and warm treatment and love and <laughs> kindness and, and nurturing, they were taken to this cold shed and people uh, that were high up in the White Star Line came and gave them this debriefing of whatever that was, which was quite odd. And so it's just so many things, Richard, that just, it makes it the most fantastic story. I, I just tell you, I, you know, I just get excited and chills when I, when I, when I was learning all of this, and I just thought, what a great uh, story this will be, and I was so excited to put it into writing and in a, in a captivating way, and the evidence is out there if you one cares to look, and I think it's neater when someone, you know, I think I will uh, inspire people to go and do some research on it themselves, and don't just take my word for it, but it, it's just a, right now it's just a novel, but uh, if, it, although I, I, sometimes I say if it, if it didn't happen that way, it should have. Right, but, right. You know, Morgan plays a very big part in this, and Morgan was such an interesting man, and what, what drove me to get into this story in the first place is because of his monopolizing you know he owned all of the trains he owned the steel he owned the the banking he wanted to uh, take over the shipping lines and i would you know i just there wasn't he was also into the energy we were talking about tesla and and the power today he uh, still runs the banks but he was very he was the first house to have electricity uh, you know, uh, like of a private home to have his to have electricity in his house, and and he was backing both Tesla and Edison. So th- this gentleman could afford to do many many things, and I sometimes my my thing is I think he might have been overspent at some points and maybe uh, driven to do some of the things that get explained in the book. And I don't think other people, I don't think anyone's really delved into this like I have. So I think it's, it's a really, really interesting read. And I think it really puts forth why we're in some of the predicaments we are in today. You can see that some of this history began that was at this time because that was all of a sudden an acceptable practice to do for this kind of people, for, this, for the upper elite to behave in these ways, and uh, that, that, that's revealed in the book. All right, I think we have time to, we can work in a, in a quick call. I don't have a name, but uh, they're, they're on the line from Indiana. Who do we have? Doug from Indiana, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. You're on the line with Patria Patrick. Go ahead. Yeah, this is real interesting. Talk about the Titanic and the Atlantic, and there was a third ship in that uh, category of ships, too. Wasn't it the Britannic? Yes, it was called Gigantic at first, and then they, uh, after... The two other ships had seen such peril, they decided to change the name to uh, Britannic. Yeah, if, I, if I remember right, during World War One, early part of World War One, it was painted into a hospital ship uh, status, and it ran into a landmine and it had to beach itself or tried to beach itself, but the nurses on the ship at the time had all the the hatches open on it, as it listed, water started pouring in on the hatches, and they lost that ship. So that uh, that uh, line of ships is really profitable, you know. <laughs> yes, it is. You know, and what one of the interesting things, and I'm glad you brought that up, was when she, when Britannic sunk, 
uh, I believe she was. I believe they came back and scuttled her, which I thought was really weird. And or or might have been uh, Olympic when she went down. I would think that that would be the ship. Like I know right now today, you can go to the Queen Mary, and it's a stunning ship, and it's nowhere near as stunning as Britannic was. When Britannic went down, it was still in reasonably shallow water, and it would have been so fantastic for them to salvage that and make that a museum today that people could go on and actually, if it was out of the water, it would be in quite good shape. The reason Titanic is uh, falling into disrepair is that just the, even though it's in deep water, which keeps some of it in really good repair, there are a lot of microorganisms that are kind of eating eating the ship. And so we we aren't even sure how long she'll last, but... The fact is that they could have brought Olympic back up and we could have her today to do tests on and actually maybe do, you know, you know they, they do a lot of this schematically now but at, it, it bef- because we did, are more digital now. But before, when we didn't have that, it would have just been, it would be fantastic. It would be the greatest museum if we had Olympic to be able to get aboard her and walk on her and, and dine in her restaurants and and go below, and it would be like being on Titanic. Why they didn't do that is a is a, a real red flag. Well, it's almost like it's real, like destroying the, uh, the 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 crime scene. Almost like the way they hauled off all of the, uh, uh, you know, the uh, the debris from from nine eleven. Uh, yeah, the one that was covered with thermite. Oh, <laughs> <maybe>. <laughs> wow, what a what a uh, a spellbinding uh, a story. Uh, Betraya, just when we thought we knew everything about the Titanic, along comes uh, Betraya Patrick and her novel, Titanic, A Perfect Crime. I really enjoyed this. Listen, we have to talk again. i get you back on. We, we, there's so much to talk about. Uh, the EMPs, we need to talk about um, the lack of a food strategy in North America, uh, water, you name it, and, and you're all over it and uh, running for political office as well. Um, would you be good for that? We'll come back. You'll come back maybe in a month or two. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Petrea. It's my pleasure. What a great show. My pleasure as well. Thank you. Thank you. All right, the website, strangeplanet.ca. Follow me on Twitter at Richard Serrett. S, Y, because I love you. R, E, double T, say hello. Please follow the truth. listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Well, thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, taxi, RV, camper, that greasy spoon, just off the interstate and your cabin in the woods and off the grid. A special hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zuma Radio, right here in the Liberty Village neighborhood of Toronto. 50,000 watts of peace, love, and truth. Uh, all of you listening in on the amazing and funky Zuma Radio app, which is a free download and well worth the time and effort. Uh, a warm and hearty how-do to all of you watching the live stream, our Hangout on Air. A hi to those of you catching the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn.com, TalkZone.com, and of course, all of you listening in on one of our affiliates uh, from Anchorage to Albuquerque and all points in between, however and wherever you're listening, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Now, I mentioned uh, the Trey Cool Zoomer radio app, which I absolutely love. I almost forgot to mention The Conspiracy Show app, uh, which is also a free download. And uh, I want to get Albert my... uh, my story producer, the shy and mysterious Albert Vinzel. Let me see, which mic are you on there? There you are, over there. Okay, are you at number four? <laughs> uh, Albert, why don't you um, uh, just give people a very brief tour of the Conspiracy Show app, and uh, there's been a number of recent, I guess, upgrades or updates to it. Uh, Albert, tell us about that. Okay, sure. Our hardworking app developer, Sharon Forster, uh, gave some enhancements to it. The, the biggest new feature is a book club. So, like, each guest is linked to their book, and now you can rate the book and also add a book review and uh, uh, communicate with the other fans. Also, it's it's open that you can add your own poll, add your own photos, and we host everything for free. So, if the 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 ones that seem most popular, so like the TI show, like if they're afraid to host it on their name, then we can put it up on the app anonymous and. It's, everything's working great. All right. Thank you for that, Albert. Just a very brief tour of the uh, the Conspiracy Show app. Uh, and, and if you haven't uh, checked it out, please do so. Again, uh, if you haven't checked it, uh, if you have not checked it out yet, I mean, uh, please, uh, please do so. Again, a free download. All right. Uh, our paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, standing by for her regular uh, monthly visit, and uh, we're going to be talking about black mirrors. Uh, And we'll also do our regular paranormal news roundup. Please visit the website, strangeplanet.ca. From there, you can navigate to the radio page. Click on The Conspiracy Show, and uh, that's really your portal to this radio program. So poke around and explore. If you're not a member, click on the blue member button and register. It's fast, easy, free. And becoming a member uh, gains you access to member-only areas like the book club, past show audio archives, and more. And if you go back to the landing page, strangeplanet.ca, there's also a TV section and a live events page. And go to the live events page and learn more about my upcoming exclusive event, The Bilderbergs, featuring Daniel Estulin, Sunday, April 17th, at the University of Toronto. And for more information uh, and to order tickets, go to the live events page, strangeplanet.ca, or visit Conspiracy Culture the bookstore, 1344 Bloor Street West, and uh, you can buy the tickets in-store. You can use the code phrase Prince Bernhardt and receive a 20% discount off the price of your ticket purchase. That promotion is for in-store only. Again, the code phrase Prince Bernhardt, 
and you can receive 20% off the price of your uh, tickets to the Bilderbergs event, but that's only in-store at Conspiracy Culture, 1344 Bloor Street West. You can also, of course, order by phone, 416-916-1696, 416-916-1696, or online at conspiracyculture.com. The Bilderberg, Sunday, April 17th, University of Toronto, featuring Pulitzer Prize nominee Daniel Estulin. Hope to see you there. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is one of the leading experts on the paranormal with more than, well, I think it's 60 books now, published by major houses on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias. Her work is translated into 15 languages. She's worked full-time in the paranormal since 1983, researching, investigating, writing, and presenting, and teaching. Her present work, focuses on interdimensional entity contact experiences of all kinds, technological and mediumistic spirit communications, spiritual growth and development, problem hauntings, and portals or geographic areas of intense paranormal activity. She spends a great deal of her time out in the field conducting investigations and research, and she's done groundbreaking research on shadow people and the jinn. And her website is Visionary Living. Dot com. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, welcome once again to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hi, Richard. Well, I'm doing pretty well. I'm on the road, as I usually am this time of year. You're in uh, Cincinnati, I understand. Cincinnati. I just finished the Victory of Light Expo. It's a big event every spring, and it seems to get bigger every year. The aisles were just jammed with people this year. And uh, what's... What's big on your list right now in terms of uh, investigations? I mean, I just mentioned a whole you know list of things that you're you're researching, whether it's you know a problem hauntings and so forth. But when when people are contacting you, uh, you know they want something investigated or researched. What's number one on their list? Uh, I would say it's a problem haunting. Uh, I get contacted when people have phenomena going on in their home that are disturbing to them. And um, uh, sometimes it's really a case that can be explained naturally, um, but quite often there uh, are uh, mysterious things going on that have been going on for a while, and people finally get to the point where they can't take it anymore, and there isn't uh, anything that they seem to be able to do to get rid of it. And so they contact someone like me and say, help, you know, what's going on? I, I have things going on in my home. I'm concerned that it might be negative, like demonic, and what do I do about it? And the thing is that there's really no no instant solution that I can provide people uh, via email, and sometimes not even in a phone call, because a lot of these cases are very complicated, and they do require some time to uh, analyze and see uh, what all's happening. A lot of times it's the people who are involved that are, are part of the problem, as well as something paranormal. Uh, we're going to talk about black mirrors uh, a little bit later in the hour, and you're going to stay with us for the full hour. But we're going to do our paranormal news roundup now. And you mentioned problem hauntings, and um, here's definitely a, a problem haunting. This involves what's been described as a ghostly stain in the attic um, of a um, well. It was called a lunatic asylum. That's not the most politically correct uh, term, but. Uh, uh, this is in was in Athens, uh, which is an, is a town in Ohio. Now you're in Cincinnati. Is that close to Athens? Um, I would say I'm probably an hour and a half to two hours away from Athens, 
But, you know, Ohio is a very haunted state, and often, uh, Athens in particular, there's a lot that seems to go on there. Uh, and this is a very interesting case that has some parallels in other kinds of cases as well. So we had um, this, in this particular case, we have a, uh, a, a patient uh, of this asylum, a Margaret Schilling. And this was, I mean, this place was open for quite a while. It, was, it, it opened in 1874, but she was uh, there in uh, the late 1970s, I think. And she was a middle-aged woman, um, as is the case in a lot of these asylums. People are uh, not treated well. They suffer from neglect. They have a lot of mental conditions that uh, just in themselves uh, are basis for interaction with something paranormal. And uh, many of these uh, old asylums have a lot of residual activity that um, continues to this day their favorites of paranormal investigators. And so Margaret was, uh, she, she was a deaf mute, was she not? Uh, yes, and um, she had a tendency to wander. And this asylum seemed to have a policy that they would allow certain people to kind of go off on their own. That They didn't seem to keep track of people too well. And for reasons that are really not clear to this day, uh, because it doesn't sound like she was the kind of person who should have been allowed out of anyone's sight for very long, uh, she was allowed to wander around on her own, and um, she might not show up for a while, and she went missing, and uh, then she was found dead. And she wasn't discovered for quite some time, I guess. That's right, uh, which is another very peculiar thing, that um, why there was such a gap in time between her going missing and her being found. But that is the story. And I guess what she she wandered into this um, uh, what do they call it? Uh, it's an unused an attic. They call it the bat wing, <laughs> um, um, sort of a appropriate term, I suppose. But it's a uh, and, and this was during one of the coldest winters on record, I, I guess. So she likely died from exposure up there. I'm guessing, and the doors what locked behind her. Well, that's the story. She liked to go to the attic, and uh, that's where she was found. Um, and the thing is that. Uh, in a lot of these cases, there are so many questions you think, well, why didn't somebody check the attic if she liked to go to the attic, and this seemed to be known, and she went missing, why didn't someone go and look in the attic? Uh, a lot of times what happens with these stories is legends build up around them, and it, it often gets hard to separate the real facts of the story from uh, embellished stories that are told later. But um, still, there she was, um, you know, gone missing, and then she was found dead, and now uh, there's this mysterious stain in the attic where her body had been found. And, uh, well, I mean, that would stand to reason, I suppose, if a body's decomposing. And she was, she was, it was like six weeks uh, until she was discovered by a maintenance worker. And there she was in the, in the, in the middle of the floor. And apparently that, that same area had been searched twice before. And they somehow they missed her? Well, that's the claim that's made. And... Uh, I have a question in my own mind that that might have been part of the embellishment of the story to make it seem a little more paranormal that her body wasn't there and uh, in, in searching and then suddenly it was there later and now there's this mysterious stain on the floor which has lasted to this day and it contributes to the haunting phenomena that go on in this place. But there's been a lot of controversy over this stain which supposedly 
is in the shape of, of where her body was on the floor. You know, you see the TV shows where the detectives chalk out somebody's outline when they find a, a corpse. Uh, and it's almost like that, although it's solid and it looks kind of white and soapy. Um, but um, um, someone came, came along with a claim later and said that uh, the story about her is, is real, but they questioned the authenticity of the stain. And they said that at some point the floor had been treated with some sort of acid wash. And their speculation was that um, the acid wash was applied to the floor deliberately in the shape of a body to sort of add mystery to it. Well, it gets hard to, as I mentioned earlier, uh, separate the fact from the fiction sometimes in these stories. Absolutely. Listen, and, Rosemary, we're going to head into a break here. We'll finish up on okay. that and continue with our Paranormal News Roundup. Rosemary Ellen Guiley right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Do not go away. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is here, our resident paranormal researcher, investigator. We're doing our paranormal news roundup, and then a little later in the uh, hour, we'll talk about black mirrors. We were just talking about the, uh, the mystery of the ghostly stain in the attic of this uh, a mental institution uh, in Athens, Ohio, not far from where Rosemary is tonight in Cincinnati. And um, uh, this uh, Margaret Schilling, a, 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 a long-term patient there, uh, disappeared, wandered around. She was prone to wandering, found um, in an attic uh, where, well, she um, it was six weeks after she disappeared, she was discovered, and uh, they removed the body, and of course there was a stain there um, because the body had started to decompose on the cement floor, and that stain uh, remains, and um, it, it looks like a rather ghostly image. However, um, it, it, it would stand to reason. If you have uh, a stain there, and then, Rosemary, as you pointed out, they're using these very strong uh, mixture of chemicals, cleaning uh, uh, chemicals, probably much stronger than they use today. We're all about green products now, but uh, uh, these products, uh, these chemicals mixed with human tissue and soap, uh, I guess somehow they managed to etch their way into the uh, the attic floor, which was concrete. So it makes sense from a scientific point of view, doesn't it? Well, it does. They certainly would try to clean uh, where her body had been found. Uh, and so uh, what makes the, the story uh, about the stain uh, apparently paranormal is that nothing ever gets the stain out. It can never be erased. It never goes away. And uh, there's a similar story from a jail in the, the town of Jim Thorpe in Pennsylvania where uh, some uh, men who were involved in the union struggles during the 19th century uh, were hanged for, uh, for crimes, for an alleged murder. And uh, the feeling is that they were wrongfully accused, but tensions were very high. And one of them put his hand on the wall 
uh, and said he was going to leave his mark as a, a protest, that's the story, uh, for his wrongful death. And so his hand imprint has never been able to be erased from the wall. And there's been a lot of dispute about that as well. But the thing is, these places are legitimately haunted. There's real phenomena that go on there, and that's uh, very typical of both uh, old prisons and places that are, are asylums, like this place was, where Margaret Schilling died. Uh, there were horrible abuses of people, and, and people were in unhappy states of mind. And all of these things contribute to a lot of residual haunting. So um, it makes for a very good story. And uh, whether or not the stain itself is paranormal doesn't detract from what goes on there. It kind of adds to the mystique of the place. It's uh, been a favorite, especially with young people. Uh, there are lots of other stories about the uh, asylum and, and the stuff that goes on there. Uh, Margaret Schilling just really stands out as a poor soul, a very tragic figure who somehow managed to lose her life, and uh, she's left her mark, literally, physically, in that place. Uh, from Athens, Ohio, to Guadalupe, Mexico. And uh, this one, as the story uh, says in Mysterious Universe, sounds like the kind of thing one would read about in the pages of a tale from horror maestro H.P. Lovecraft, uh, except for one key issue. This particular story has its roots not in the world of fiction, but in the domain of fact. Tell us about the flying fiend of Guadalupe. This is a fairly recent story. It, you know, dates to 2004. And uh, there's a report that a Mexican police officer said he was suddenly attacked in the middle of the night, everything is always in the middle of the night at about 3 p.m., by this huge flying uh, creature that he described as hag-like. And it just leapt out of him uh, from a tree uh, along the side of the road uh, as he was um, uh, driving by in his routine patrol. And uh, it was absolutely hideous. It looked like um, a monstrous sort of woman, all dressed in black, and uh, she kind of floated above the ground, and she had these solid black eyes and um, um, had these wings that she could fly, and she flew at him like she was going to attack him. And so he put his car in reverse and slammed his foot down on the accelerator and uh, tried to get out of there. And uh, he claimed that this creature actually clung to the windshield. This sounds like a real horror movie here. And... Um, then uh, he, he slammed into a wall trying to get away and um, closed his eyes because he thought something horrible was going to happen. And, um, you know, suddenly this thing is gone. Uh, this is a, uh, a kind of motif that other people describe. Uh, I've come across it time and time again, uh, usually people out in remote areas at night that might be on foot or in a vehicle. Suddenly something horrific comes at them. Uh, attempts to attack them, they think it's all over, they're going to be hurt, maybe even killed, and then boom, it's gone. Well, there are similar descriptions of things like this, and I was very reminded of black-eyed kids and black-eyed adults, uh, humanoid flying uh, monsters like Mothman, um, many reports of these throughout the ages, and she certainly had that, those kinds of characteristics. Right, well, this uh, officer, Semenyego, uh this is a police officer, and he he was so frightened by this, he reportedly fainted at the from fear, slumped over his steering wheel, and then he awakes to find paramedics there, and no no monster. And what happened when he told his when he reported this to his colleagues? 
Uh, well, um, they actually said that um, he discovered, to his astonishment, that other people had had similar experiences there. He was expecting to be laughed at. And uh, this is another characteristic that I find in these encounters as well, is that when people do come forward uh, and tell their story, uh, they discover uh, to their shock and to their horror, literally, that other people have had the uh, same thing or similar things happen at the same place. And it's almost like the victims uh, almost want to be disproved uh, so they can tell themselves, well, it was all something weird, it was my imagination, it wasn't real. Then they find out that other people have had those experiences, and so it becomes even more terrifying. There was a, there was a Texas-based uh, cryptozoologist, I don't know if you, you, you've uh, met him or deal with him at all, Ken Gerhard. Uh, who went down there, and this is five years after this incident took place, so I guess this is now 2009, he went and he interviewed this officer. And this is still so raw and emotional for this guy. When when Gerhard was uh, interviewing him, the tears welled up in his eyes, and he, he broke down five years later. I mean, that that, that to me just rings uh, true. This, the, the, this story is credible. It certainly does, and I know Ken. He is a fine cryptozoologist, and he's done a lot of outstanding research. Uh, yes, when someone has been truly traumatized, um, just recalling that experience will evoke the same intense emotions uh, over again. So there are these places or portal areas uh, where um, beings from other dimensions, whatever they are, and uh, sometimes we really don't know what they are, they seem to be able to come through into our reality. And uh, this kind of terrifying attack uh, has been reported in many places all over the world. This Now, this is an interesting story. Um, someone went and they did a search on a, a, a database for uh, native Missouri mammals, uh, and they found something they didn't expect. Two, two somethings, actually. Among the listings for the American bison, the badger, and the long-tailed weasel, uh, and again, these are... Um, I guess, endangered species in the state. But they found two other listings, the Chupacabra and Bigfoot. Now, remember, this is a a state uh, website for Missouri mammals, the Chupacabra and Bigfoot, an official government database. What's Chupacabra and Bigfoot doing on an official government database, Rosemary? I know. I just thought that was so strange. Uh, because uh, the the government officials usually deny that these sorts of things exist. And uh, chupacabra is uh, kind of a vampiric creature that uh, sucks the blood out of things, um, especially other animals. And, of course, Bigfoot, uh, we have many reports of uh, Sasquatches. Um, but um, uh, it seems that the government have, has cataloged these descriptions. And... Um, uh, I, I don't know why they're in a state database. Uh, it's just very peculiar. I mean, either someone there maybe thinks that they're they're being uh, cute and funny or, or sarcastic, or uh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's interesting because they actually they name the uh, they give the Bigfoot uh, entry um, different names. They call it Momo, Swamp Ape, Homo Cryptus. Um, and, and Momo is a Sasquatch-type creature that's supposedly uh, specific to Missouri. Yet here they are listed on a government um, conservation website. It is, it's very interesting. It's, it's somewhat reminiscent of um, – there was a, a, an ABC News report 
several years ago about a chapter in FEMA's Fire Officer's Guide to Disaster Control Manual, and it detailed what to do in the case of an attack by space aliens. Well, and that's another peculiar thing, too. But, you know, I do think that government agencies think of these things. And uh, at some point when people report, uh, for example, like the appearances of of the Sasquatch in these certain areas um, over and over again, uh, you would think that, um, well, maybe government agencies do pay attention and they do alert their employees to be prepared in the event of what if something like this is real or what if they have to do with people who are panicked by something that they think is real? And sometimes I think that's the case as well. Or, you know, government officials are, are very fond of sort of covering all possible, uh, you know, scenarios. And maybe, God forfend, someone is attacked by a chubacabra in Missouri. They can say, well, we had it on our website, so we're not, uh, you know, we're not liable for damages. <laughs> right, exactly. I've got to ask you about this, and time is tight here, but this is a, this is a very macabre story. Uh, something called ghost marriages involving corpse brides. And uh, this is a phenomenon that's on the rise in China. What are ghost marriages, Rosemary? Well, there's this belief in China that uh, it's, uh, it's not good for a single man to be unaccompanied into the afterlife. And so families who have relatives, uh, male relatives who have died without being married, for example, um, they find, um, this is really creepy, they find a dead female to bury with him to go into the afterlife, to be his companion. And um, they literally will acquire corpses of, uh, of women to, uh, to be buried. And there's a huge business for this with female corpses going for large amounts of money, um, ten, fifteen thousand dollars grave robbing uh, for these bodies to be uh, buried along with their relatives so that he has a ghost companion into the afterlife. And it just reminds me a lot of the the grave robbing for other reasons that were done in earlier centuries for a lot of medical purposes. You know, when the doctors hired grave robbers to go and and get corpses for their, um, their medical purposes. But this is a very strange cultural belief and even stranger that it's still practiced today. You would think that something like this would have died out uh, a century or, or more ago and not still be done today. But it's done, um, you know, it's, it's an underground business. <laughs> Literally. Literally. Yes. So how do I mean, do they at least try to match the, uh, the corpses based on age or does it matter? I mean, uh, if they find an, an older, I can't believe I'm actually saying this, but I mean, if they find a, a, a you know, the the, uh, the corpse bride and and she's far younger than the uh, the groom uh, corpse, I mean, is he robbing the cradle and the grave at the same time? I don't know. <laughs> well, that's one way of putting it. Um, and um, uh, the best thing to do, uh, what they look for is, this gets really macabre, a fresh corpse, you know, a woman who has um, recently died and has not been buried for a long time. And what this does is uh, this prevents the ghost of the man from haunting his family. That's what they're really trying to prevent. Oh, I see. And so the corpses are stolen. Um, People have hired uh, literally grave guards uh, to protect the graves of especially young women 
um, from being uh, ravaged and the body stolen. And do they do they take the corpse bride out of the the, the casket and place it in the the coffin of the of the the, the groom corpse or how does that work? Do we know? Um, I'm not really certain on that, whether uh, she's just buried alongside him. I, I think that's the case, that as long as she's, like, next to him, then she's uh, his companion. Uh, and um, and it, I, I don't think they, like, open up his coffin and, and put the two of them together. All right. Okay. Um, and is this mainly in rural areas or is it in, in uh, urban areas as well? How widespread is it? Uh, that also I don't really know. I would think that it's uh, more the case in uh, more of the remote areas. Uh, I don't think you'd find it uh, so much in the cities. But here again, a lot of these superstitions and um, very strong beliefs about the afterlife of the dead and what the dead are capable of doing to the living, uh, they have been uh, strong throughout centuries in certain countries. And so there could be pockets in urban areas where people do believe that, and these practices do take place. All right. Well, Rosemary, when we come back, uh, we're going to dial it back a couple of years to a um, one of the nearly 60 books you've written, The Art of Black Mirror Scrying. And uh, we'll talk about black mirrors when we return. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't touch that dial. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at one 866 740 Four seven forty. Well, it is that time of the month when we are joined by our resident paranormal investigator, researcher, author of nearly sixty books, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and uh, we just finished off with our uh, paranormal news roundup, and we're going to head on into new territory now. This goes back uh, to uh, twenty fourteen in a book uh, Rosemary wrote called "The Art of Black Mirror Scrying," and let me just uh, uh, crib here. From the introduction, if I might, every day we look into mirrors to check our appearance and see how others see us. Some of us know that mirrors have another, more mysterious nature. They have a long history of being able to penetrate the veil between worlds and see into the land of the dead and the realms of spirits. In fact, any reflective or shiny surface, metal, crystal, stone, a bowl of water, a still pond, has the same potential to pierce the veil. Instead of seeing our own face or things in the world around us, we can see the dead, the astral plane, and the afterlife. The power of mirrors to call forth the dead and spirits gives it high status as a necromantic tool. Necromancy is the summoning of the dead for the purpose of prophecy, that is, the revelation of things that are hidden. 
The ancient Greeks developed various ways of bringing forth the dead, including the use of mirror-like surfaces in special chambers or places called the necumentorian or places of necromancy, Latinized today as necromantium. Another term that's been popularized is psychomantium, a term coined by Dr. Raymond Moody, one of the pioneers in near-death experiences, or NDE research, to describe a meeting place with the spirits. Rosemary, have you spent any time in uh, one of Dr. Moody's psychomantiums? I did. I had a fabulous experience some years ago uh, with Dr. Moody. When I started exploring black mirrors in earnest, I had been interested in them for quite some time, just in uh, conjunction with my study of occultism. And uh, I had uh, the opportunity to meet Dr. Moody when he was doing a lot of his uh, psychomantium work. And I went down to Alabama to his home and went through his entire process. Now, um, Dr. Moody uh, kind of rediscovered uh, dark, shiny surfaces as uh, a way for grieving people to have final closure. And uh, so he constructed his psychomantium for that purpose. It was primarily for contact with the dead. And this was, uh, it, it was a therapeutic process where uh, he spent part of the day with me. Uh, I wanted to t- contact my father, and uh, he's, uh, we talked about my relationship with my dad and uh, the good and the bad points of it and uh, what I wanted to accomplish in having uh, contact with him. And then I spent time by myself in uh, his black mirror chamber, which was a walk-in closet that he had converted for this purpose. It had a huge mirror in it that stretched almost from floor to ceiling, and uh, there was nothing in it but the mirror and uh, a wingback chair with a a very dim light behind it that cast kind of a glow into the room. And uh, I was left there by myself to have this journey into the mirror. And then uh, we spent time afterwards uh, debriefing, processing what I had experienced. It was emotionally quite powerful, and uh, Dr. Moody described in his book Reunions the experiences of others uh, having contact uh, via the mirror. And I knew that this was a tool that I wanted to work with in that way and in other ways. It is very powerful. It will open up the psychic faculty in many people for a lot of things, not just contact with the dead, but uh, uh, coming into contact with spirits like angels or spirit guides. Um, I've had uh, people even contact aliens in the mirror, look into the past and the future, explore their past lives. Uh, it really is an opening into the spirit realm and the astral plane. Uh, what is a black mirror exactly? It's not. Is it just a regular silver mirror painted black? Well, no, because um, a silvered mirror is glass that's coated on the back side with a silvered process so that it gives that uh, reflective surface, whereas a black mirror is coated on the back totally in black. And the most common thing to use is paint. And uh, so when my husband Joe and I make mirrors, and we make a lot of mirrors that we sell uh, and for the purposes of our workshops, uh, we use... different kinds of paint. We've experimented with latex and acrylic and enamel, but something that adheres to the surface of the glass with several coats so that it's dense enough that you can't really see through it. And it, so it makes a, a shiny a surface 
that uh, is still reflective, but very dimly so. You can see yourself kind of as a ghostly image in it. But when you use the mirror, you really don't want to see yourself. You want to position the mirror so that it's blank and featureless, almost like a, a bottomless pool of black. And that's what I tell people. It's, it has, it's an opening that's infinite. And when you, when you go into the black mirror uh, with your gaze, uh, by looking into it, you are sinking into its depth to call four things from, uh, from the astral plane. Okay, and so there you are in Alabama at Dr. Eamon Moody's place. You go into his, um, his makeshift psychomantium, which is a walk-in closet. There's, you're sitting in a wing-back chair before this ceiling-to-floor black mirror. And what happens? What do you see? Uh, well, it's very common to see things like, uh, initially, uh, like the mirror surface seems to move, and you might see flashing lights, uh, streaks of light, um, lights that move around on the surface, or the appearance of clouds that come and go. And what most people hope to see are images, um, uh, the familiar images of the dead. And that does happen for a lot of people, that they actually see it in the mirror. And uh, for a lot of people, myself included, uh, what I get is I get a lot of psychic information on the mental plane, that the mirror seems to act as a stimulator for images to appear in the mind. And you start going through a reverie where you connect with someone, uh, you might hear their voice in your head, uh, flashes of um, scenes from their lives and your life uh, with them uh, start uh, coming before you. One of the most impressive things that I, uh, occurred for me in the mirror uh, on that day in my uh, quest for my father was the appearance of what seemed to me to be a light being. That is, it wasn't like a photographic image of my father, but something that, um, you know, in asking Dad to appear uh, before me, it was more like um, what I would think um, an etherealized being would be. And I wondered if I was seeing my father in, in some sort of a new body, a new form. Because I think that when we pass into the afterlife, we go through stages and we do acquire a different kind of, uh, of body. It was a very powerful experience for me. I'll bet. I'll bet. Uh, well, perhaps you can give us some details on how we might construct our own psychomantiums for those inclined. We'll do that when we come back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, my guest. Her website, visionaryliving.com. And the book, if you're interested in following up on this conversation, is called The Art of Black Mirror Scrying. We'll discuss further right here on this very program. Stay with us. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416 360 0740 or toll free at 1 866 740 4740. 
Welcome back, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com. The book is The Art of Black Mirror Scrying. And before we, we uh, discuss, you know, how maybe we can set up our own... Uh, now, which term do you prefer? Do you prefer psycho... Um, uh, the Raymond Moody term for the word, psychomantium, or do you prefer necromantium? I actually prefer necromantium because it's, um, it's a little closer to what uh, the Greeks would have done in ancient times, place of the dead. Um, when Raymond Moody coined the term psychomantium, uh, I, I think it's a, a gentler term for uh, what, what he saw as a psychological therapeutic process. And uh, that means place of spirit. And uh, the, the Greeks would have called it literally a place of the dead. Uh, and uh, necromantium sounds a little scary to some people, so um, I've used both both interchangeably, but I, I think ne- necromantium really captures the power of the process. All right, so just continuing on with your personal experience in, in search of your late father, uh, you, you received some sort of mental images, and, and in your mind's ear, maybe you got messages from your father. Is that the idea? I mean, what, 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 how close did you get to c- contacting your dad? Uh, I think that I really did have contact with my dad, and uh, he had been gone some time. He died in 1983, and uh, this was in the late 1990s, uh, uh, when I did, or mid-1990s, excuse me, when I did this process. Um, time really doesn't matter in terms of the elapse, but I do think that if, uh, from our linear time perspective, people do uh, progress into different states in the afterlife, and I I think that Dad was in uh, another state of being, another state of consciousness, where um, how I could perceive him was not in uh, some ghostly form of a physical body, but in uh, a different state of energy, and and that that's why um, I saw him as this uh, this light form, this light body. And uh, I thought, uh, you know, meditated on this. I uh, had um, a post experience uh, in which uh, I felt that I was told that I had seen um, the energy form of a soul. And I do believe that I had contact with my dad. I felt a lot closer to him after this experience. And um, it was very comforting to me. Now, some people have experiences where the dead will appear like they looked when they were living. And um, I think we get what we need. Uh, I had no idea what to expect. And uh, some people have um, very few visual impressions from the mirror, but they have a lot of emotional impressions or they have mental impressions that... Um, might include inner voices like carrying on a conversation with someone who has passed on. Or sometimes they simply get a knowing that uh, comes into them, uh, and they might experience closure that way. Well, one of the interesting uh, things uh, I learned from your book, um, The Art of Black Mirror Scrying, is that that uh, this, sitting down in front of the black mirror, uh, whatever happens, happens, and then you go away. But that's only the beginning because... Uh, this experience of sitting in front of this black mirror and gazing into it uh, may uh, spawn a, a bunch of different uh, scenarios, like uh, increased lucid dreaming, increase in intuition, um, synchronicities, co- you know, meaningful coincidences, and these sorts of things. Did that happen to you? 
It did, and I do consider this to be one, uh, the Black Mirror, to be one of the most powerful uh, psychic development tools that um, you don't necessarily have to want to contact the dead by using a Black Mirror. You can use it to open up your psychic faculty. And uh, by using it, uh, you will have an increase in all of those things. And that's certainly been the case with me. And I found uh, in working with people, because I do these workshops now all over the country, uh, and I get feedback from a lot of people, uh, their initial experience and then their post-experiences. And people will often tell me that they, they've had meaningful dreams later, or they've even had um, a waking visitation or some other sign uh, if they've been attempting to contact someone who's passed over. It's not uncommon also to have very little experience the first time, especially if someone isn't used to meditating or doing, um, you know, this kind of uh, visioning kind of work. And people think, well, it didn't work for me. Nothing happened. But uh, it's just a delayed reaction, and they get something later. I truly believe that we get the experience that uh, in the way, the form, and at the time that is most meaningful for us. Uh, so you, you mentioned you, you conduct these workshops, and uh, in the book, a number of uh, people in your workshops, uh, your Black Mirror workshops, have shared their experiences and their testimonials. Can you, can you share maybe one uh, of the more profound testimonials from one of your students? Oh, wow, gosh, there are so many of them. Um, I've had um, uh, people uh, see faces very clearly. Uh, they feel like they're real, like they're having uh, a real face-to-face encounter. Um, communication is telepathic, uh, so it, it all goes on on the mental plane. And uh, sometimes fe- uh, people uh, seem to be transported to... Uh, another world, like if they uh, close their eyes for a while, they feel like they're in another world where uh, they can actually have physical contact with someone. And uh, I've had people feel touched. Um, It's not uncommon for presences to manifest in the room. um, That um, Sometimes people will, they'll stare in the mirror for a while and uh, then they close their eyes. It can be very fatiguing to keep staring into this black surface, so people close their eyes for a while, and sometimes that's when they have the most profound sense of uh, someone in the room touching them, Uh, and they feel that it's the person that they've been trying to contact. We've had phenomena manifest in rooms where we've had sounds, um, even that you would ascribe to poltergeist activity, like uh, thumps and bangs on the walls, and we've had lights go on and off by themselves. Uh, one of the most dramatic experiences I've had um, since the book came out was um, uh, the sound of Native American drumming. Uh, now, I play a, a very gentle, um, continuous ohm sound when people are having their mirror journey. I give them instruction. I take them to the edge of the mirror in a guided meditation, and then people have their journey in the mirror uh, for a period of time, and there's, so there's just this ohm sound in the background, and the lights are very dim. And um, uh, I suddenly heard this sound of drumming coming from inside the room. Now, uh, nobody had a drum. There was nothing going on in other, you know, there was no outside way that this drumming sound could could be accounted for, and I was not the only one who heard it. Um, of course, I didn't say anything until the end of the experience, and 
uh, everybody in the class had heard this drumming sound. Well, one of the participants volunteered. She was a Native American, and she volunteered that it probably was related to her experience because uh, she had um, sought to contact a Native American who had been a teacher of hers, a, like a shaman teacher. And um, I, I think that that was phenomena that was, you know, real phenomena that was related to that experience. So we have bleed-throughs that intrude into physical reality. We've had um, uh, spirits appear in the room, the dead appear in, in uh, the room where we're working. Um, it's really amazing what happens. Well, this is not entertainment. This is not to be trifled with, because if, if this is, in fact, an opening into, like a portal, into, a, a, you know, another dimension or, or whatever it is, um, I, I mean, there must be certain rules and protocols to prevent something you don't want coming through from coming through. Well, anytime you open the door to, to spirit, uh, there is a hazard, of course, for a negative experience. And I, I'm very upfront about that. It doesn't matter what tool you use. Uh, I've never had people uh, report to me later or even at, in, in the immediate um, uh, time after a session that they've had a negative experience. It seems like uh, the biggest hazard for people is not having the, a dramatic experience. You know, they want a dramatic experience, and it wasn't as dramatic as they hoped it would be. Um, but yet it was still very profound. Uh, so could you have a bad experience? Um, the, uh, the potential for it uh, is there. Uh, people have different boundaries in terms of what's unsettling. And sometimes just the fact that they're having an experience, uh, even though they want it, is unsettling enough. But it is a doorway that you can close. It's an interface. And um, I've had negative uh, personalities come through uh, various kinds of, of tools and interface uh, devices that I've used in the course of uh, spirit contact research and paranormal investigation. And uh, first I uh, tell them to go away, and if they don't go away, then I, I literally shut the door. I close the door mentally and, and energetically. I um, end the session and uh, withdraw my own energy. So I, uh, I discuss all of these things in the beginning of a session, and that if, at any time if people feel uncomfortable for whatever reason, uh, they can uh, bring themselves back, and then I... Uh, tell them how to energetically close the doorway. I just have about a minute here, uh, Rosemary, but I know from you know previous discussions with you over the years, when it comes to mirrors, I mean, there are certain do's and don'ts, and in, in, in terms of maybe putting together your own uh, necromantium, there, you, know, there's, you have to be careful about where you place a mirror in the home. Uh, the short of it is, uh, don't place it at the foot of your bed, at the head of your bed. A lot of folklore uh, says that mirrors being natural doorways, uh, you're uh, a lot more vulnerable when you sleep, so don't put it in your bedroom. Mirrors should never look into each other as well, so you should not place your mirror where it can uh, look into another mirror that might be in your home. That seems to create a very weird energetic space. All right. Well, uh, much more, obviously, contained in The Art of Black Mirror Scrying, and people can uh, get a copy of that uh, through the website, visionaryliving.com. Just go to Rosemary's uh, uh, bookstore, and, uh, well, you can choose one of about 60 books. 
Uh, you've got to get busier, Rosemary. You're just not writing. You're not churning these out quickly enough. Not doing enough, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, always a pleasure, Rosemary. Safe travels, and we will speak to you in a month's time. Thank you, Richard. Good night. Good night. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com. All right, my thanks to Ian Robertson. Albert Venzel, John Franz, and all of you for listening at home back next week with a brand new program, including, wow, the M6 and Paris crashes. This is a story not to be believed. You've probably never heard about this incredible mystery. You'll learn all about it next week. And, uh, of course, uh, well, there'll be much more. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.